0: Hey everybody, we are live. What's up everyone? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the
1: meaning! I heard you paint houses.
0: <laughs> That's right, I paint houses. Welcome, welcome. My name is Jacob. I'm filling in for Jared, who is out today on vacation. I'm joined here by Ryan, as you just heard. What up, film fans? What up, what up? And Austin out in Australia still? Yeah, we're down under, man. Down under, mate. <laughs> no better crew to talk about a nice old mafia movie. Today we're discussing mm-hmm. The Irishman, written by Stephen Zalian, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring everybody, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, Ray Romano. I can keep going on. As always, let's go around and get first impressions. What was it like the first time you saw this movie? If you watched it a second time, like me and Austin, I don't know if you did, Ryan. What was it like the second time you saw it? And uh, let's start with you, Ryan. What was it like? Tell us.
1: Well, you know, you, you called this The Irishman. I, I think someone needs to explain to Martin Scorsese that his movie is called The Irishman because he put a title screen for I Heard You Paint Houses at the beginning. I, don't I know, know if I you saw all that. that. <laughs> I but did. That was bizarre. I thought it was pretty cool, though.
2: Yeah, I I was anticipating more title screens throughout, you know, like chapter divisions, and yeah. there weren't. So so retroactively, it made me think, okay, I mean, that was a very conscious, big, block-lettered decision. Yes. So what's going on there, you know? And, yeah. and,
1: and real quickly, before I get into my uh, uh, thing, uh, uh, first review, Jacob, did I hear you say that you went into this first screening not knowing it was a true story? <laughs>
0: That's right. I didn't know that you caught that. I did. (laughs) That's crazy to me. Okay. Let me, let me, well, I go into every movie, pretty much every movie knowing nothing because I've been disappointed Mm. far too many times. So like anytime I like get too amped or too jazzed, I get disappointed. So what I do now is I kind of go in knowing nothing. I knew nothing about this movie. So I went to, I saw it, I saw with Jared at the uh, Egyptian theater. Now that Netflix runs the Egyptian. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I just sort of saw it, and I, to me, I was like, "Oh, he's just made another Goodfellas, or he's made another Casino." Well, Great Goodfellas movie! and Casino
1: I, were both yeah. about real people too, true stories.
0: Yeah, so I don't, I don't know anything. I should not be here hosting. I'm filling in. That's my no, no, no. I I didn't know uh, much so about this movie, and I didn't know much about those stories. I just didn't know much about what was going on. I knew Jimmy Hoffa was obviously a real character. Mm. I wasn't sure how much of this was fictionalized around him. Gotcha. And then uh, in the second watching and researching for this podcast, first time I watched it, I had no intention of coming on this podcast. Now that I did, I was like, oh, uh, okay, there's a lot more going on. Every single character can be kind of Googled and researched. That's interesting. Yeah. Every moment, like the Nashville court scene, I mean, everything is sort of a historical moment. So it felt to me more like watching Lincoln this time. Okay. Uh, not that not not to be not to be disparaging, but I thought it was like a little more historical. There was more to get out of it. So anyway, what was it like the first time you saw it, Ryan? <laughs> okay, yeah, because
1: I'm the opposite of you. I I read like a fuck ton of movie blogs and movie review sites and stuff. So I, I it's pretty rare that I go into a movie completely blind. I do you know I try to stay away from spoilers and stuff, obviously. But uh, I knew a lot about this story going into it, and I haven't read the book. I heard you paint houses, but I you know I pretty mm-hmm. much know the entire story. Um. And yeah, so I, I could not wait for this movie. This was the fucking the Expendables of of Martin Scorsese verse or whatever. I, well, I you know, do I so- do follow
0: you, or we're friends on Facebook. I did see your like the anticipation with your full on fucking list of Martin <laughs> That's Scorsese right. movies. Yes. I
1: made an entire list. I ranked every Scorsese film uh, that I'd ever seen. You know, Wolf of Wall Street's at the top. I was trying to see where The Irishman would fall in, and basically, um, I really love this movie. I, I mean, it, it is not the home run out of the ballpark hit that i wanted it to be you know it's not good fellas it's not as good as casino even in my opinion um it doesn't um but 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 i don't really at the end of the day i think it was even aspiring to be like those movies even though it obviously does fit in nicely Mm. next in the filmography with those totally but it, it has a completely different aesthetic whereas those two films are very very tightly uh bound together by their aesthetic and you know this one's ten times slower. Uh, it's three and a half hours, even though I guess the other two are three hours too. But this one feels way slower, obviously, um, because you know it's about fucking geriatric people. It's 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 Goodfellas meets Grumpy Old Men, and uh, which I didn't know I needed, <laughs> but I I really liked it. Like, um, uh, uh, and I I too saw it in one sitting at the Egyptian Theater, like you, which I think is the only way to watch this movie. I I do think that. I'd be curious to hear I'd be curious to hear people's emails you know like the difference between the people that watch in the theater versus the people that watch it in like three parts on Netflix because that I, honestly by the time you're on your third sitting to watch the Irishman if that's how you did it I feel like you're you're pretty much it's like a chore for you you're like all right I gotta finish right. this movie people tell me it's supposed to be important whereas you know we we saw it in three and a half hours which was too long it is a too long movie I would say. It doesn't need to be three and a half hours, but I will say that I was completely engrossed and engaged the entire time. I was rarely like yeah. like twiddling my thumbs. Um yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, to me, the, like it, it fired on all cylinders with the aesthetic. The pacing was cool and different. Uh, the de-aging was weird, but honestly, I liked it at the end of the day, it, it, and, and it kind of made me, mm. my imagination run wild with the possibilities of how you could apply that stuff. I mean, it obviously mm. looked, they looked old even when they were young sometimes, which is, you know, it didn't work perfectly, but I got used to it. So overall, I mean, I give it a solid A-. minus. Oh, it's pretty uh, great. Really great movie. I will tell you very briefly before you get to y'all's, so I, I had a funny... I went on a date to see this movie with somebody. Oh, no. It was our second <laughs> date. She, it was her idea to see this three-and-a-half-hour-long movie. And I'm like, okay, great, <laughs> but I, I've been wanting to see it. Let's go. And then we go to the Egyptian, and I swear to God... For she starts coughing, right? Which she's sick. You can't get mad at someone for coughing, but she does it every ten seconds for three and a half hours. Oh, and and I, I was never gonna say anything. I got her some water to help it. But then everybody around me literally starts saying, "Hey, can you please leave?" After about two hours of her being there, and so oh my, my I was in this like painful. So I was in this curb your enthusiasm episode from <laughs> hell where uh, we're literally me and my date are ruining the whole movie for five hundred people at the egyptian uh just but oh, no. because of something she can't change she's sick what is she gonna do you know and so then i'm sitting there going uh, and then she says ryan stay here i'm gonna go in the back and so i listened to her and i didn't leave that was how that uh, so I'm, I'm an awful <laughs> date. never go Wait, on a did... date with me to a movie i'll leave you in the movie if you're sick and you can go with the back and, and honestly i mean you got everyone felt bad for her but it's because she was sick, what are you going to do? She can't help it, but yeah, I mean, uh, she's coughing. So, did you watch it again? Yes. So, so that viewing experience was a little fucked, but I did enjoy it. But then yeah, I did watch it with my folks when I came back for Thanksgiving and uh and okay. once again, and we watched it on Netflix, but in two parts. And that was definitely not as fun as the first time, even though the first one had the coughing incident.
0: So, let's go to you, Austin. What was it like watching this movie the first time? What
2: was it like watching it again? What yeah, so rating? the first time I saw it in the theater, second time I did a two-part viewing on Netflix. And I actually didn't mind the two-part viewing of it. It felt kind of nice, like it was a miniseries almost, mm. you know. And I went in with, I guess, the historical biographical lens. So I went in knowing that this was going to have some sort of um, – that it was going to be like entertainment historical biography, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and it totally was. It totally was. And I – I was hesitant before seeing it because I'm kind of tired of so much cinema. Right now, I know that Scorsese is not the average director. What's up? I was just saying, say say what? what? Tired of too much cinema. Well, contemporary cinema. Not tired of the cinematic form. I'm bored with what is being produced. And so... When I saw that it was going to be another gangster film, I was like, I mean, how many times is he going to make a gangster film? I was like, I know it's him. I should give him, like, a long leash. But then I was like, also in this landscape, cinema seems to just be saying the same shit, reproducing the same stories, just with different names attached to it. So I was I was a little bit Mr. McGrumpy face before I went in, right? And I was completely... yeah well get get your sound effect ready because my mind was blown so there it is i i was wrong man this is a masterpiece this is absolutely fantastic it's actually one of my favorite i would say it is for me top tier scorsese film i think it's absolutely amazing especially considering it post (laughs) Post Wolf of Wall Street because I was making a lot of kind of political and social and economic connections that we can get Mm -hmm. into. But I also Mm -hmm. thought there were some really interesting religious themes. I think it might even be a sort of like personal reflective manifesto of Scorsese reminiscing about Mm. coming to grips with mortality in his own life. Um, There's some really interesting themes about empires rising and falling and these great leaders and strong men who seem to be on top of the world but then everybody kind of Mm -hmm. dies. You all end Mm -hmm. up in the same place. Mm -hmm. So there's some Really kind of meditative and lovely themes to address. And then I think the acting was terrific. Yeah, the the, the aging makeup stuff was kind of funky and weird. But um, nevertheless, honestly, across the board, I think this is absolutely fantastic. And I really want to read this film in conjunction with Wolf of Wall Street. Because I think what mm. Wolf of Wall Street is for the age of financialization, this film is for the age of like Fordism. Um, The age prior, pre-Reagan, this is like the pre-Reagan Wolf of Wall Street, or we could inversely say that Wolf of Wall Street is like post-financialization, post-neoliberalism Irishman. I think there's a really interesting (laughs) conjunction there.
1: But no one's having fun in the Irishman.
2: They're all getting killed. No, they're having so much fun. That's the whole point. Look at all they do is celebrate each other. They have these meetings where they're embracing their power and they talk about how great each other are and they're kind of just trying to achieve power. It's They're different, of course. They're not the same thing. They're not mirror images of one another, but they are kind of like distorted images of similar tendencies, but what happens when you're in a different socioeconomic framework? So you still have organized crime in Wolf of Wall Street. It's just... A little bit more legitimate, and it takes place in the age of like finance and those mechanisms that lead to financial crises, like the collapse of 2008. Right,
0: I think that's that's I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today because I think there's there is like this sort of feeling that there's something else. Well, there's a lot more to read into, of course. We want to get into the religious reading, we're talking about Scorsese, there's obviously the priest, and there's like the redemption angle. I'm very curious. Um, I I think just a quick segue to me, what I watched it with Jared at the Egyptian. I had a really good time. To me, my first reaction, first of all, I did cry. There was a moment there where I cried. Didn't cry the second mm. time around. But it was a moment, I think, around the daughter saying, look, you kind of fucked up. Mm. I think it was that. And maybe him, like, shopping for his own uh, tombstone and stuff.
1: And her 10 words that she said in the movie, you cried? Yeah,
2: exactly. I think it was, the, like, the, other, was like, the other daughter, Those right?
0: No, not not Peggy. Yeah, yeah. His other daughter who's like, look, you, were, you know, I couldn't come to you or, you know, what, what you would do. I thought, like, wow, these guys are all top of their game. Like, you got Scorsese, such a craftsman, able to do his thing. Like, he just, he knows how to make a fucking movie. From the first few scenes, yep. you're like, or first few moments, you're like, I'm already in. The music's perfect. Yep. The cinematography's great. And then you got these actors who are just like, this, is ain't, this ain't no thing for them to just, like, step right up and just do a great job. So I told Jared, I was like, wow, these are all these guys, like, just top of their game. It's awesome. And Jared's like, I don't know. I don't <laughs> I don't think they're top of their game. I think they're they're, like, well past their prime. There's no, mm. it's not nearly as fun as Wolf of Wall Street. They're, they're, they're like living the big life. But like Ryan just said, there's actually no excess. There's actually no, like you don't see them enjoying their money. You don't see them really doing anything. They're just collecting like wallets full or uh, uh, envelopes full of cash, stacking it in the glove compartment.
2: And that's like the end of what we see. So, mm. um, yeah, that's, that's, that's like the morose element that comes into it, right? Because he constantly, how does he, describe everyone. He puts titles up on the screen and it's like, this person was shot yeah, in the I, face. I this person f- died this yeah, way. Yeah, so, w- w-
1: so, oh, I'm sorry, continue? Yeah. I didn't mean, no, no, I, no, I didn't so, mean so that it's all.
2: it's all filtered. No, no, so it's like all filtered through death and the end, right? That's so that's why I think mm-hmm. it's like a distorted version. Not, they're, not, they're not mirror images, like I said again, but there's, there's a really interesting way to read them, and I think it's because post-Reagan economics is more excessive, right? It just is like The time of uh, Wall Street guys doing blow and hooking up with strippers and shit like that. Like that's kind of like the caricature of it, right? But this is more like serious, you might die, organized labor battling against the corporation. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. like it's almost – it's less excessive on purpose and then filter that all through a man who's a director slash creator, storyteller who's musing on death and things like that. Uh,
0: I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm I'm very pumped to, to dive into that.
1: It totally is. Uh, uh, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, uh, Austin. Except it, I feel like it's less um, about the filter through death. You know, he's he's ba- but, but but I think that he's really trying to comment more on his his mafia movies like Goodfellas, Casino. Because you know Wolf of Wall Street, they're not organized crime. That's not even the same ballpark. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you can make the point of it's legal organized crime or whatever. In the uh, but all, I, right. all I'm saying is that. Uh, um, is, is that this is, like, like Thelma Schumacher, the editor of uh, his longtime editor, she basically was an inter- in, in an interview and said, like, Goodfellas and Casino, you know, he wanted you at the end of those movies to not want to be a gangster and realize how much, um, you know, this how much death and suffering this lifestyle leads. But everyone was having so much fun during the movie uh, in Goodfellas that, it, that people wanted to be gangsters, whereas an Irishman, he definitely was going mm-hmm. out of his way to make a, a gangster movie about the real life, suffering and re- repercussions yeah. of this lifestyle and totally. you know it's not fun it's like you, you're seeing you, you you are seeing people having a little fun in like the restaurants whining and dining but then immediately it's uh, uh you see their title card when they die how they die yeah it's horrific you're it's literally brutal. only seeing it's the, not going to be a fun the, life for them
0: <laughs> yeah it's only like the non-glamorous parts of of the of the lifestyle well before we move on in case you don't remember the three and a half hour movie and synopsis i'm gonna give you a really quick blurb about what the movie is about quick recap and, uh, and then we'll move on to the show. So an elderly Frank, the Irishman, Sheeran reflects on his life as a working stiff truck driver who, after some criminal dabbling, is saved from jail by his lawyer, Bill Bufalino. Sheeran promptly falls in with the Bufalino crime family, held by the head thug, Russell, who he starts working for and murdering for. Eventually, Bufalino introduces Sheeran to Teamsters union leader and underworld liaison, Jimmy Hoffa, who Sheeran becomes bodyguard and friend to. Under a Kennedy presidency, Hoffa's crimes catch up with him and he's sent to jail. The Teamsters struggle in his absence. Upon being pardoned by Nixon, Hoffa sets out to regain his power and become president of the Teamsters again while finding himself at odds with the crime families. Sheeran warns Hoffa that he's lost favor with the underworld, but Hoffa insists that he has too much dirt on everyone to be worried. Come 1975, Sheeran and Russell are on their way to Bill's daughter's wedding when Sheeran learns he's been assigned now to kill Hoffa. Reluctantly, Sheeran sets Hoffa up, shoots him, and has him sent off to a crematorium, all in time to make it to the wedding in Detroit. Harsh. After a while, Sheeran and Co. are charged and convicted of unrelated crimes and sent to jail. An elderly Sheeran is released into a nursing home, but his family refuses to reconcile with him. He consults with the priest who offers him absolution and pieces out, leaving Sheeran to spend Christmas all alone. End of movie now, before we move on, I want to give a quick shout out to our awesome sponsor, Skillshare. It's the new year coming up, and you're going to have a bunch of resolutions. You want to get your skills up to speed, and Skillshare is the perfect companion for you. So, getting out of the rut and staying creative is easier said than done, especially with a busy schedule. Maybe you want to get back into an old passion that you've had or learn something new. Well, you can build, fuel, and expand your creative fire. With Skillshare, Skillshare is an online learning community for the creator in all of us. They have thousands of classes and all sorts of things. I've taken their classes on illustration and graphic design. They've got courses on photography, UI design, creative writing, animation, fine arts, music production, which I've also taken, film and video, marketing, productivity, freelance, entrepreneurship, you name it. They've got it. So their classes are on demand. You can learn at your own pace. It'll save your place too. So you just log right back in and pick up where you left off. Uh, or uh, And uh, you can get inspired, join a class and create something that you love. And for those who uh, know all the work that I do at Wisecrack, I've done everything from graphic design and logos to, I just did some audio editing today. I learned literally everything that I've done here uh, from online courses. I've like taken gosh, hundreds of them at this point. I love uh, learning new stuff and learning these techniques. And for me, it's like the great way to learn is Log in, see someone else do it, and then kind of follow those instructions. So join the millions of students who are already learning on Skillshare and get two months free of unlimited access to all of their classes at skillshare.com slash wisecrack. That's two full months of unlimited access to their thousands of classes completely free. Get started at skillshare.com slash wisecrack to sign up. I've taken the Thomas Frank class on productivity, which was awesome. Uh, another YouTuber is also uh, in a nutshell and Kruzgesak teach a class on motion graphics. Graphics, which is awesome and i just found the new class by uh, jessica heesh on logotype master class which is how to create really beautiful logos that are more than just a logo or lo- more than just words and if you want to actually check out skillshare's new logo it's pretty apt and apropos considering that's the class that i like so go check out that course or any other course that you'd like again
2: skillshare.com wisecrack and now back to the show Sweet, sweet. If I can jump in real quick on something that Ryan said before, and sure. I think is really interesting to kind of clarify what I was saying about this like pre Reagan and post Reagan thing. Yeah, please. I'd so like, yeah, I'd love, Ryan made a really interesting. interesting point. He said, "Yeah, I guess you could kind of say it's organized crime, but it's like legal organized crime." If it, uh, that kind of seems paradoxical or contradictory. The the
0: Wolf of Wall Street? The finance crimes?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that when we look at The activities that like Jordan Belfort gets arrested for or if you look at some of the things that a lot of people criticize, let's say um, the financial institutions for participating in that led to the collapse of – in 2007 to 2009, right? Mm -hmm. And that just in general seemed to run rampant. And then we kind of say, okay, so what characterized organized crime? Well, a lot of the stuff that characterized like official, like mob crime, right, was bribery, was – using strong-arm tactics, were threats. Extortion. um, Embezzlement, coercion, etc., etc. Those same things that were crimes that brought down a lot of the top mob bosses that, that led to, like, Senate councils being erected to chase after these figures are the... Prime tactics, the actual mechanisms of the way that financial institutions operate, not only domestically, but also globally, right? Like the IMF and the World Bank use Mm -hmm. strategies of types of bribery. Like, yeah, we'll give you loans if you just abide by what it is that we say you must do. Depress your wages, become an export-led economy. It's called negotiating, baby. (laughs) It's called using (laughs) strong-arm tactics, but – who legit or who can who can regulate the regulators right so if you are at the top of the pyramid like you know nato united nations these large kind of intra, uh, international governmental agencies there's nobody above them so there's nobody to contest the legitimacy of their authority right but what you see here with organized crime is that they weren't quite at the top of the pyramid so they could still be kind of the recipients of pressure from the top down but there's really similar stuff going on right Like in terms of tactics that are being used, it's just that, for example, in the post-Reagan era when you have the deregulation of the economy, you don't really have that – there's no body above the corporations or there's no body above the financial institutions. The financial institutions become much more embedded within that – whatever the components are of governance at the top of the pyramid. So that's why I think it's really interesting to kind of think about – Because Scorsese is a moralist, right? So in a way, I almost feel like he was criticizing some of the stuff going on in Wolf of Wall Street, although people maybe missed that. But you absolutely get the moralism here. And I almost kind of get that he's saying like, hey, if you act in a shady way, it doesn't matter what your context is. Like you will have to uh, pay some sort of recompense at the end of your life because as uh, Joe Pesci slash Russell's character tells Jack at one point when he says he's going to church, he's like, you'll see, like you'll get it. You know, when you're old and you're about to die, everybody dies alone. You gotta pay. You gotta atone for your sins. So don't be like an immoral person in your life. It doesn't matter if it's legitimate or if it's illegitimate or if you get away with it or not. We all gotta pay to a higher power, and God is that ultimate higher power that you can't get above. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I see where you're coming from. I mean, I definitely
1: would would uh, would at the end of the day, these or, the organized crime and the Goodfellas Mafia and Casino are, are dealing with vices that are illegal, right? So that's how they differ in a big way from these legal, quote-unquote, you know, f- f- financial crimes and stuff that uh, – uh, right. So th- there's a big difference between those. And, and then they're also dealing with violence. Well, but they're, like but they're Wolf they're Wall Street, the Wolf of Wall Street guys are not dealing, with, like, violently coming after you and
2: threatening to break your yeah. kneecaps, you know. Right. Or shooting well, I mean they're, they're not they're not but they do shake people down. Remember there is the bit where they hold the guy over the railing and they're like scaring people and shit. Yeah, so they okay. do use some some shady tactics. And and then if you take the government level, then you do have guns pointed at another nation oh, you don't like, gotta hey, tell me twice, let us man. have I, access. All, yeah. I, the
1: goddamn <laughs> I, uh, You're a libertarian. Exactly, I know. Yeah, the gun the government, <laughs> I'm not a fan of that gun. So is This uh, is yeah, but, but that's
2: precisely what I mean. Yeah, that point that you made about illegality is so interesting, though, right? So, like, in in like The Wolf of Wall Street, yeah, obviously they cross the line and they they go through stuff that's illegal. But maybe what Scorsese is saying in this is that it doesn't matter if it's illegal according to human institutions or that it's immoral mm-hmm. according to mm-hmm. the human way of life, but that God is that higher power that we ultimately, at the end of our lives, you got to pay some There's sort the final of final judge. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah.
0: There's also similar shots. Like if you see the the scene, I think it's uh, is it Tony Pro when he's like getting arrested in Miami and he's like running away from the agents and kind of fooling around. <laughs> it feels super similar to Jordan Belfort being like running away and chasing, getting chased by the FBI agents and uh, Wolf of Wall right. Street. But let's let's dive into the yeah. actual text first, because I'm trying to I was trying to think of how to structure this conversation because there's a lot. Let's talk about yeah. the movie. Like, the, let's talk about I think the themes that I wanted to bring up. Maybe there's others. I wanted to talk about Peggy. I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea mm. of like the broken down truck and getting the help of of the mafia or getting the help of Russell to get on his way, and that that there's a sort of an inversion of that later. I wanted to dive into regret and this redemption and this very religious theme. I think mm-hmm. death is a great one that you brought up. So we have a lot to go into. And there's also another question about uh, leaving the door open, which I think w- we can sort of start anywhere uh, on these, but what sort of speaks to you first? And then I want to get into some of the meta stuff around, yeah, like the CGI stuff and making a $160 million movie and a lot of the other pieces. But let's start with the movie itself, the text and the narrative here. This is Steven's Alien script. Uh, And then, of course, we've got the history, which you can dive into, too. So we can we can make this a three and a half hour podcast.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I don't remember who it was. Someone on Twitter, actually, when I said that we were going to talk about this, said, uh, is it going to be as long as the movie? And I was like, I think we're going to be a little more efficient. We'll try (laughs) to be. Let's
0: try. Let's let's start with just like let's just start with let's just start with a blabber. um, (laughs) I don't know. Right. Let's okay. let's just talk. Let's talk about really quickly about Peggy. I don't know if there's much to say here. This is his daughter, Peggy. She's very um, reticent and resilient. and She's sort of like very standoffish with, with her father. Um, we see kind of this loss of innocence happen as soon as as Frank beats up the shop owner for some kind mm-hmm. of small— and I don't know what he did, but maybe he put his hand on her or did something, and he, he beats the shit out of him. And that sort of becomes this moment where we see Frank really become a different man. And mm-hmm. Peggy for the rest of the film, aside from from Jimmy Hoffa, aside from that relationship, which is again almost like maybe a bit uh, almost like a caricature of like her affection for him. But um, yeah, Peggy w- Peggy's clearly a, a key a key kind of symbol for him as as he tries to make amends. Um, let's dive into her a little. What bit do you think thing.
2: it is that why why does she like Jimmy? That was a I, I thought that Charisma. maybe.
0: There was an element of he's acting yeah, Maybe it's uh, the charisma. Maybe he's lovable. There were a lot of lines about Jimmy Hoffa being, you know, the the most amazing guy in the world, or the most one of the most famous people in the world up there with Elvis and the Beatles. I think he just. I think Scorsese or at least the script is trying to paint him to actually be like, to actually have like a really good heart, or like his like his heart's in the right place, or something about him is like a little more angelic and a little more of a
2: like a. It's a little perfect, you know? It's a little bit immaculate, which is strange. (laughs) Do you think Scorsese kind of sees Jimmy as being like the actual historical figure of Jimmy Hoffa as almost being like unfairly demonized? And that maybe that's partly what's going on here. So that like Russell and even her father, uh, Frank, she views them with skepticism because she just has like a sense that she can just intuit. That mm-hmm. they're yeah. bad they're because they're the mobsters. People. yeah, but Jimmy, he's a union guy. He's a teamster. Yeah, he participates in some of the activities with the mob, and he was a quote unquote mobster," we would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that that we've we've unfairly caricatured him because of his participation with these other people, but really he had the best interest of workers and um, to try to create uh, solidarity. Uh, across the lines and so she was able to intuit that goodness and that actually Hoffa's a good guy but put in a very difficult political and social and ethical set of situations.
0: And I guess technically he never killed anyone although we don't know I mean it's see, there's, I don't know if, if there's like an allusion <laughs> right. to it with the Kennedys but there's uh, Yeah right. She um. sort of That's maybe that's Ultimate, oh, the violence isn't there. I mean, he's not a violent guy. I don't know. I mean, there's, mm. there's something There's that she's definitely very, very something there, there that, you know, to.
1: he's a union guy, out for, you know, a dude for the people. So that inherently mm-hmm. makes him, you know, uh, a sympathetic character, I think, to Peggy. But also, um, in, in terms of the movie and the structure of the film, he kind of functions as the wild card, uh, uh, go off the chains. He, uh, have, mm-hmm. have, have y'all seen Mean Streets by any chance?
0: I have yeah. not. Yeah, yeah.
1: His, you know, it's this movie guy that got him really big, and and De Niro's character Johnny Boy, um, or no, I'm sorry, it might be Harvey Keitel's character. Either way, one of them just is a guy that just flies off the handle, and the whole movie mm-hmm. is about is about them just coming in and fucking everything up, and you're just like, holy shit, you mm. you cannot be more of a fuck up, but but it's another people having to uh, to save his ass. So I feel like that Jimmy Hoffa kind of employ it, it is that in the movie is Johnny Boy or or the other guy I'm sorry uh, uh and it's just like you know no matter what he's just he's his own worst enemy and he gets the best of himself yeah.
0: and uh and another movie that I'm thinking about that does that I can't remember if it's network or there's something else that's sort of speaking to me of like, like that kind of idea like he can't help himself he's such a he's such a like um he's such a loose cannon that he's just loose like loose cannon is the grave.
1: perfect word I was looking for yeah
0: yeah, he's totally. Just at every at every chance when he's warned, he just kind of strokes his own flame again, even far, further. I don't know though
1: what if Scorsese is saying though that Jimmy Hoffa was a great guy and didn't deserve yeah. you know or some comeuppance too, like in his own moralistic yeah. Catholic no, way. It, yeah,
0: the Peggy thing, I mean, it, it was the only heartstring really of the whole movie. I mean, because he's a family and, friend, dude you know yeah he's just a good family friend and and I was telling Austin this earlier I guess we stand in as the nurse at the end of the film where she doesn't really know who Jimmy Hoffa is and I'm like yeah I I knew the name but I didn't really know him. we're <laughs> we're young people who don't know much about union history but um
2: yeah, yeah, I love. I love. At the beginning, they say, I, I think it's Frank that's doing voiceover, and he's like, "Look, you might not know who Jimmy Hoffa is mm-hmm. now, but in the fifties, every single person knew who Hoffa was. He was the second most powerful person in America behind yeah. the president of the United States." Yeah, he says. In and the for 50s, me, that was so was, important. As,
0: yeah, fi- in the fifties, he was as big as Elvis. In the sixties, he was like the Beatles next to the president. He was like the most powerful man in the country,
2: bar none. Wow. I mean, I. I know all of the, like, mysteries surrounding his body. He was never found, mm-hmm. and he's probably in, like, the foundations of some building in whatever city, <laughs> right? You know, and that all these things. Or he's swimming with the fish. He's like Hoffa or whatever, you know? I've, I've known about that stuff, and I knew that he was a part of the labor movement. But I guess it made me want to call my grandpa. Um, he's passed away, so unfortunately I can't do that. But it made mm-hmm. me want to call, like, Grandma or Grandpa and be like, Hey, what do you guys remember of Hoffa? And just to hear their tale of it, you know? Because my parents are still too young. My parents were born in the 60s, mm-hmm. and so they would have been, like, elementary kids slash, like, early junior high when he went missing. So I kind of am curious, maybe, but, um, but you know, I'd really like to talk to some of those older, the older generation and see what it is that they remember about this guy because that was just kind of revelatory for me. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely got, like, a better glimpse here. Well, let's let's dive into what I think is a, an interesting question, Jimmy Hoffa, the first time that Frank meets Jimmy or stays, stays the night with Jimmy at the, at the hotel or apartment or house, wherever he is, um, Jimmy leaves the door cracked open before he goes to bed. And obviously we kind of focus on that shot for a little bit. And at the very end of the film, which I think is very important to always look at the last kind of moments, um, at the Mm -hmm. end, obviously Frank asks the priest, can you leave the door open a little bit? Don't close it all the way. Uh... Okay, Austin or Ryan, bring me the meaning. I gotta say something. You know, uh, <laughs> show me the meaning! Show me the meaning, baby. <laughs> what's going on with R- that open crack?
2: Ryan, door? you jump in first, brother.
1: About about the the opening and closing of the film. Yeah,
0: well, yeah. Like- why why does he asking for that? Why is what's the significance of that door being cracked open or left open? When going to bed he's a
1: motherfucking hitman and uh uh i assume it's to hear like footsteps coming up on him i couldn't tell you honestly i'm not a hitman i don't paint houses
0: for a living so. <laughs> you don't paint houses no. i heard you paint <laughs> but i assume it has
1: uh it's something to do with just his old ways of you know like like maybe always uh, uh wanting to look over his back and see uh, if someone's coming to kill him and get revenge for all of his
0: fucking sins I'm going to provide the Jewish reading here. I'm going to say he's opening, he's leaving it open for Elijah to come on in (laughs) and have his fill. I love it. I don't know
2: Uh, what you're talking
3: about. Yeah, you got to keep yourself open to the doors of heaven, my friend. Um, I mean,
1: obviously, the opening of the movie, like it's coming in on the nursing home, it's slow as fuck. I think he's definitely it's Martin Scorsese saying, "All right, you you're get ready, strap in. You're about to watch a three and a half hour movie about about uh, uh, geriatric people." and boy does he deliver yeah. on that joe pesci to quote somebody i saw on twitter is is ages of is an age i have not yet seen on a human being he is so old in this movie
0: jared like, actually said that you know when when joe pesci at the end is doing this little hand thing jared's like he did that a little too well yeah <laughs> scared scared me man so old in this movie it is insane uh so you know we actually the, talking about the very the very first scene though it is. We we push in through an opening. We push in through kind of a doorway and enter a story. And we kind of leave a story. So it's almost like we're we're
2: glimpsing into something. But yeah, I'd like to hear your reading, Austin. I feel like this is right up your alley. Yeah, so there, I think there are a few things going on here. One, uh, because th- especially the final 20 minutes are so focused on death. And then, of course, sprinkled throughout is that everybody is defined by death. Obviously, that's important. But this idea that I think... And I, for people who listening, I don't know if they remember, but I just recently went through a kind of pretty traumatic health scare as well, and so I kind of was dealing with this when I was in hospital. are
1: back, dude. Um, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, thank you, thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. But
2: this idea, this overwhelming sense that you die alone, no matter what, even if you have family and friends and loved ones there, there is this fear that this is this subjective experience that you go through completely on your own, and He's looking through these photographs and the nurse says, oh, you know, I haven't seen your one daughter, but you don't really see any of the other family around him mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. actively to visit him all the time. He talks about them, but he's looking at them longingly through mm-hmm. photographs, through memories, preserved memories, because, again, he's alone. So as the as we're pulling out and there's that crack in the door, there's a sense in which maybe we can see that we're all alone. We all die alone. But I think there's another layer to this that's even more interesting, and this relates to when Hoffa has the door cracked in, in the hotel room. Um, Which does partly relate to what Ryan was saying. Definitely, it relates to what Ryan was saying. But I want to refer to another great movie that has an amazing doorway shot, and it's Searchers. The final shot in Searchers, where John Wayne, a man of the wild, is not allowed to enter into the house. Now, in classical westerns, and we talked about this in our... Um, in our Logan video. Yeah, that we produced over a year ago now. So if you're interested in that, but mm-hmm. classical Westerns are oftentimes defined by the man of the wild. You see this in Shane, which obviously is referred to constantly in Logan um, as not being allowed to come into society. It's violence is required. The man of violence, the man of the wilderness comes in to save the town, but can never be a part of the town. So what you get then is that there is this sense in which there's always a barrier, right? Like you can't enter into the world. You, you kind of – you can try but you can't enter into the world. And so that's what's going on I think in the final shot maybe is that he's looking at us. It's the gaze in psychoanalytic terms is he's looking at us kind of longingly alone, outside, dying on his own because maybe violence was required to forge American history as it's caught up with governments and labor unions and special interests. But nevertheless, the man of the wild is not allowed to actually be a part of our world. You can't be because you are ultimately uncivil.
0: No, I think it's a beautiful reading. That's really, I mean, it's really touching. Maybe it's a bit of what I was getting kind of tearing up about toward the end of the film, which was like, why, yeah, this man did kind of what he had to do. I mean, not that I'm... Yes. You Austin, awesome. you're touching nasty right stuff though. Yeah, you're touching me. I'm getting me. chills. I'm getting sh- chills right now. <laughs> you're touching the meaning, baby. <laughs> but uh, You guys no, no. are touching
2: me through the uh, interwebs. Thank you. Uh. Thank you
0: for bringing the feels. So, no, no. So, keep going. You were going to say that you were going to kind of reflect on the Hoffa
2: door. Yeah. So, so, then what's going on with Hoffa here is that Hoffa and Jack, they don't have that barrier. They connect through the gate through the door right they're not alone somehow Mm -hmm. that somehow they're able to connect and even though yeah there's like the constant anxiety right like there's the moment when joe hoffa she tries to start up her car but she like hesitates Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. she's like again she's looking over her shoulder knowing that she could be blown up and i think jimmy hoffa probably operated like that all the time that's why he would keep a door cracked but then when you crack the door what are you doing you're inviting something else to help you to create that solidarity to create that protection yeah yeah, exactly, and and when you are alone and you're outside, you don't have that. You are completely left to your own devices, and so I think there's something going on there that we can think about as well. Mm-hmm. No, it's a, it's a great reading. I really like that um, reading
1: too. I, I will say though that that um, I really wish somebody one of us had read this book because i hear it's awesome for one but also i bet you that there are people that have read it that are screaming they're going like it's in the book we know i I, uh leaves the door open (laughs) or something you know like specifically bringing some
0: of the comments we'll pull those up in a second too yeah if you read this book and definitely leave us some voicemails too uh our voicemail system is gosh do you remember the phone number off the top of your head it's in the description (laughs) i've got i'm pulling up all my different notes here but something uh, elf gut yeah that's right. <laughs> uh, but we you can leave us a voicemail or send us an email at movies at co. That's movies at co. And our line is 213-534-8807 or 21-ELF-HUT or ELF-GUT-07. And uh, some folks are asking about Jared. Where is he? He's on vacation. We have another video with him coming out tomorrow on the origins of sci-fi, which will be pretty dope. And uh, back in the new year. But. Uh, I want, yeah, I, 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 I'm loving that reading. I think that's that's super interesting. That was the, the kind of the big question to me uh, was mm-hmm. that door. Let's this is a really light one before we move into the kind of heavier stuff of, re, of redemption, regret, the religious readings. I, I, it just struck me yesterday where if you think about Frank's first entry into this whole world, it's him when his truck breaks down, Joe Pesci mm-hmm. uh, or Russell helps him fix his truck and there's sort of a deal with the devil being made there, right? Like he, he fixes his truck and all of a sudden he's able to get on his way. And hmm. in the same way, Frank, uh, I'm sorry, in the same way, uh, Jimmy Hoffa also has sort of a deal with the devil as a deal with the mafia in order to kind of get on his way. But you see an inversion for both of these folks later on, on this road trip, you see, uh, you see, Frank is fixing the flat tire, so he's like there on the road now. Inverting now, his role is different. Now he's sort of serving and servicing, and you're, it's also on this same very the same trip that that inversion happens for Jimmy Hoffa. He's about to be outed because of. Or what? Or oft? Or whatever the terms are. Uh, whacked. He, he, he whacked. Uh, and uh, which brings me to a quick aside. There are so many good lines. It's a lot of comedy in this movie, too. A lot of really funny moments. But like when when he's talking about the lawyer being dead, he's like, he de- he dead. He's dead. Who did it? That's the first the first reaction <laughs> of the FBI. Um,
2: <laughs> oh yeah, at the end. Yeah, yeah, at the end there. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if this
0: if this broken down truck. I mean, I I think just trucks. The mo- you know, the Teamsters Union. There's sort of this deal being done. I, it might be nothing. It probably is nothing, but I just thought it'd be worth bringing up. I just again, I, that that shot of them on the side of the highway fixing the tire just seemed like why why add that? Because every scene, although it is a long movie, did seem pretty pivotal. I thought. it did kind of move the story forward.
1: Joe Pesci is too fucking mm. old to change attire tire at that point. I um, it's true. I think you are onto He's something. Changed. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> I did. I People did think it was old? funny how meaning? he
2: kept calling him kid, and I am like, you guys are both in your like sixties at least, right? 70s, here, I am mean, pretty I, sure it is. I know. I mean, I know yeah, in real life, 70s. in real life, they're in their seventies, but like even with the makeup and the aging and stuff, I am like, you guys oh, right. still look like you are in your fifties yeah. and sixties. <laughs> old men. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um. So let's talk now about where I think the. Uh, we can't get into Scorsese reading without the religious reading. So we've got a, the priest character. Uh, he's making amends. There's a big theme of redemption, regret. We don't get a lot into yeah. Frank's psyche. We don't really, I mean, he he really claims to not even really feel that much at all. He doesn't know if he's got regret, doesn't really know if he's got anything mm. going on in there. And I, it kind of brings me to to like, I guess that the whole movie just seems very passive. Like we don't, Frank just seems like a character just kind of just floating from job to job doesn't seem to have a lot of be making very active decisions. We don't get to know much about his decision-making. Um, but let's just dive specifically into this religious reading. Like, I think you mentioned the door being open, maybe the um, well, God uh, being the re- ultimate re- judge, right?
1: Real real quick, can I, get, can I say something about what you just said? Please, please. Like, b- b- uh, about his active decision-making, I, I think you can, uh, yeah. or I read a lot into the one scene where he's recounting his war stories there, um, with Joe Pesci, you know, and he's and and you see him, you make those people uh, uh, dig their own graves, and then he shoots them. And then he's also talking about uh, Joe Pesci also being in the uh, uh, the foxhole, saying like, you know, if I ever get out of here, like I'll 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 do right or whatever. I I think that that. He's a he's a guy that was in the war obviously um was was hurt by the war was suffered from the war and then he came home and he's just like I'm going to do everything to uh, to have a family and have a good life and you know I mm-hmm. should be dead basically and I have a second chance like everything we see in the movie most everything we see in the movie is is his second chance and he's basically living it up being like I'm going to do whatever it takes cuz I've already done whatever mm-hmm. it takes I've done more than what all these other normal people walking around have ever done. You know, I've gone to the to the to the limits of the human c- condition. So uh, uh, mm-hmm. that that's where I think his active decision making is. It's just all
2: t- it all kind of comes back to the war. Yeah. Do you think that the war is kind of his his fall? And I mean that in like the theological sense, like his fall from grace or his fall from a like a previous state of Eden or some sort of degrading move. Because he says, like, I made my mind up, like what you're talking about, Ryan, when he's like, when I made my mind up when I came back from the war, that I would never sin again. Mm -hmm. And yet all we see is that his whole Mm -hmm. life becomes progressively more, quote, unquote, sinful, which then culminates in this, like, redemption thing. So it's like – it's almost like the war was the thing that broke him and – then he he couldn't get back. So again, it's that man of violence thing, right? It's like it was required. You needed the war because then there's constant references again. Like, oh, you know how it was in the war. Like, Mm -hmm. fuck the Nazis and shit like that. And he's like, yeah, that's right. I I get it. So it's like, again, there's this reference that that was the the catalyst Mm -hmm. for his life that set the trajectory of the decisions that he would make. But nevertheless... That's when he becomes that man of violence. But it was required because what do we get? We get a prosperous America. You get a prosperous West. You get a prosperous labor movement. You get all these other, (laughs) 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 right? So, you know, it's kind of it's like these necessary. I think it was was it Jacob that said it maybe the necessary evils that um, that he kind of participates in that he has to through his life. So then the question is is if you didn't have a choice, like if you were kind of constrained into this world, there's that one really interesting bit where. Russell Joe Pesci gives him the ring on the finger and he's like, There's only three people. There's uh Angelo Bruno, myself, and you that have this ring. Which again, it's like now you're one of us. Again, like, and because we give you this, now you owe us, which is like the now you owe us to kill Jimmy kind of.
0: Yeah, there's uh, constantly this right. sort of deal with the devil or it's it's a give and take. Constant. I mean yeah. constantly. Like it's
2: it, it is a very Faustian thing, yeah. huh? Yeah.
0: I mean it does seem like I definitely feel like the the Russell character at the beginning fixing his truck is like a Faustian like that is the devil, like some sort of spirit, coming along and saying, "Hey, I'm going to fix yeah. your truck, but there, it's going to come with a price." And um,
2: that's so clever. Now I'm thinking, like, now I'm thinking of of Pesci's character of Russell being exactly like that, like Applegate in the play, play "Damn Yankees." Or Joe like Pesci the, the, is Satan.
1: The... Yes, I've been saying that <laughs> yeah. since Home Alone.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about Pesci and Home Alone. Heyo. Oh,
0: Jesus. Wow. That's yeah that's huh. the sequel huh So uh, yeah, yeah. this is its spiritual sequel No I mean I I that's why I was trying to kind of get I, I again that the I don't know the truck there was something going on where it just felt to me like Frank like I said it's sort of a passive side where he's trying to survive he's trying to kind of relive a new build a new life for himself he's trying to do well by his family I don't think he's ever trying to alienate Peggy or anything like that but he's no matter what he does, it's just pushing him further and further away, and almost like the 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 post Western idea, like he, they're pushing him further and further away and out of society. Although he's pivotal and key to our history, he's key to the the cleanest corners of the government, including people like Kennedy, right? Like th- mm. th- these people are key to all of that, and it comes with a price, certainly. But it's uh, but they're also ostracized. So it's in, it's just an interesting. There were some interesting uh, dynamics at play with the characters here, and especially since the movie wasn't all that active for the the core character here. I mean he's he's certainly doing things, but it wasn't like we were getting you know really into his mind or really mm-hmm. understanding if he was regretful or not. and so that that was sort of the only place I could kind of see some interesting dynamics at play.
2: Yeah, it's, I think it's really interesting, too, because Scorsese, and, and I might be pressing this too far, but it seems like he could be making even a larger, because, you know, he did, like, Gangs of New York, which mm-hmm. is kind of Same it's a writer. story about the founding of New York, but it's much more a story of America, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe this, too, fits into that, because I think I have always tended to see organized crime as being, like, this minor thing where, like, people just did it to get by, but... When we really think about how foundational it really is in building and propping up the American empire, Including then I think the it aliens, kind of, yeah. this type of film really sheds light on how dirty, maybe how, like, maybe even we, America, have made a deal with the devil, so to speak, you know? So it's not just. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's that famous quote by Jesus. He says, "What does it profit a man to lose his soul, or to gain his to gain the world and lose his soul?" And mm. there's something interesting in that. Like, you gain the world, you gain power, you gain dominance, um, you gain that supremacy, but you lose your soul. And what does that ultimately profit in the end? And maybe there's like a warning here that Scorsese is kind of. Ever the moralist trying to say, hey, let's be aware of the things that we do. And if we lose our soul, like what does that ultimately profit us in the end? Yeah,
0: that's interesting. And it does feel like a, it in some ways romanticized like the good old movie, like the good old mafia movie and the good old mafia. But then again, we look at the, the detail. None of it's all that glamorous. Like we said, it's all about death. It's all about mm. the, the, the the costs and the repercussions and the regret and when you stack all that up, it's like we're kind of like it's like the post-mafia movie. It's sort of a different, a different mm. take on that. It, you know? to- oh,
2: it totally is. This is the unforgiven of mafia movies. Yeah, it
0: does feel that way, doesn't
1: it? Well, and and, no and, and talking about it not being glamorous and kind of post-mafia movie, uh, uh, <laughs> the post-mafia. like in terms of the form, like I was I was pleasantly surprised uh, uh, that all of the all of his hits or murders were basically just tracking wide shots. And you see him just basically mm-hmm. walk up to somebody, say, "Hey, what's up?" Pop, 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 and then and, and then he walks away. And then mm-hmm. the guy just, you know, blood. It's not no frills. It's not the crazy zooms and push-ins to the, the fucking mm-hmm. Rolling Stones that that he's mm-hmm. normally used to or, or mm-hmm. to, to, to doing. And it's just like showing you the cold, harsh reality of what this guy does. He goes up under false pretenses, says hi to somebody, and then shoots and then kills them. You know, and then like yeah. because somebody told him to for money. So. It's like hmm. he, this guy. Yeah, he's kind of the Terminator. It's like he he's not a he, you're, you're right that he doesn't you, you don't see him actively make the decisions, you know,
2: like the biggest uh, like Par- the most-
1: parasite this year. You know, where like literally the whole movie, every scene of the movie you're watching. You're into the minds of the characters. You're seeing every how mm-hmm. every they're coming to every decision. This you're just like, all right, he gets money in a wallet you know he's going to kill somebody and then you see it very coldly Mm. it was cool
0: the only the only time we have any contemplation and it's very silent which is appropriate i guess for this character is uh is when he's told he's gonna have to do this with jimmy hoffa he's like having that Mm. the the shitty total (laughs) cereal and and pesci is like so nonchalant he's like you're gonna we're gonna drive here we're gonna get on a plane give me your glasses you're gonna do this thing and he's just like my stomach is churning then, right? Because it's like, my God, this is his friend. And that's the only time yeah, we ever up, see like any the build up hesitation. Yeah, the build-up to that scene was brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah, it really, it really was tense. It um, was very
2: tense. Like, even just driving down the street and looking at what house, like, you're like, will you just fucking get to the house already? Like, what's in mm-hmm. the house? Who's in the house? What's happening? Like, it, it's handled so well. But then, to Ryan's point, the way that he kills Jimmy, again, Yeah, it's so so brutal. easy. Mm -hmm. and so cold, right? Just, and I was like, oh, fuck, man. Like, he even pats him on the back as he turns. Like, Jimmy walks into the house, and he says, let's get out of here, Frank. And Frank kind of, like, guides him gently to the door and just touches him with his left hand and then just pulls out the pistol and shoots him twice. And you're like, holy fuck. Like, it it was almost so easy that it was anticlimactic, but yet because of the buildup and because of the relationship and because you know the internal... Torment, then it made it not easy for us, yeah. and I'm sure not easy for him. You no, know, I don't know.
0: No. Yeah, totally. And and did it so? So I, I keep calling him Todd, but the his real his son. Um, <laughs> so Jimmy Hoffa's son, Todd from Breaking Bad, uh, did, Chucky, Chucky, just yeah, Chucky. Yeah. I'm thinking of like the the Ricky Lee Jones song. So does Chucky know? That his dad's being killed now. I mean, this is his son, right? Does he? I, I can't. I know he that said he said that he, he didn't know. He said time. that all he
2: knew was that he was going to pick someone up and take his dad to this place. Um, but that's actually in the voiceover at one point. Yeah, yeah. It's uh,
0: later on, I know he, okay. he he does some time for it. But I figured like he would know what maybe would happen. But anyway, the um oh, and yeah. the fish scene. I was not a fan of the fish. I don't like that kind of dialogue. Well,
2: interesting to know right now that actually James Hoffa is the president of the Teamsters. One of Jimmy's sons. Wow. He's actually the president of the wow. Teamsters at this that. moment. Crazy. Wow. Nutty. Well, we've got- And he's the second longest president behind like Tobin or something. Like, I can't remember the guy's name, but whoever was the longest person from like the like the first president, I think it was, of the Teamsters. That's so, crazy. Interesting stuff that it's still in the family. I know. You
0: know? <laughs> it's a nice little nepotism there. So <laughs> we've got- uh, Is there any- I mean, we're, we're kind of pressed for time. We're already at 55 minutes, but- Any, anything? Let's really quickly, anything about the history that was illuminating as you were diving in for your research, Austin or or Ryan? We're not even uh, halfway through our three and a half hour hour podcast.
1: What are you talking about?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just, we can now put up the title card. <laughs> yeah, this is like, part like, one. Like Mandy, we can just put up the title of the movie now, in an hour in. But yeah, um, yeah. anything anything that kind of stood out to you or things, I mean, again, I, I, as I kept finding every vignette here, the Nashville trial, uh, every person who died, at first I thought that was just like a, co- a comedic bit, but like every little caption and title card of how they died, when they died, etc. all historically accurate as far as I could tell. I know there's plenty of controversy as to whether this book was accurate, or if this, if if his entire story, if Frank's entire story, the the real story, is real or is just a fabrication. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems I read an article uh, on, in Forbes where Scott Bornstein said that there are people who are uh, a bit skeptical of the of the. Uh, the FBI think the FBI and historians feel like it's a bit unsubstantiated and, and heavily doubted mm. this confession of his, uh, given the facts. But, but anyway, anything else that kind of stood out that you'd like to bring up for the audience for our show me the meaning listeners?
2: what you think, Ryan?
1: Well, I, I am surprised that that many people can keep a secret for that long. I mean, it, and you're right that mm. there are a million conspiracy theories, even about Frank Sheeran's story, but I don't know from what I've read, a lot of people seem to believe it. And, uh, and I need to read the fucking book is kind of what I've decided. If, mm-hmm.
2: I, if I want to be a true, I, I paint houses historian. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, what this did more than anything was trigger a curiosity to want to study more like the relationship between organized labor and the mafia and the state and then the battle between like these special interest groups, organized labor in particularly, fighting against big corporations, right? Like that's Hoffa's big speech was that, you know, we stand in solidarity. These big corporations are trying to kind of come in and depress our wages and lay us off and shift towards automation and all this other stuff. And then it's like, so how can how can we stand together? And then how does this noble cause get tied up in maybe ignoble um, activities like Murdering people and putting pressure on people and is that like a means to an end kind of logic and do we kind of just have to throw our hands up in the air and say well sometimes you got to get your hands dirty in order to do good things or you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. it made me want to kind of delve more into that stuff because you kind of get this us against the world kind of thing going on with Jimmy Hoffa and I think maybe you could even take this with like the Sicilian mafia itself starting with the old family that what is it the the Cosa Nostra in Mm -hmm. in Italy that comes over that it's kind of we're trying to make our way in this new world that didn't want us at first. You know, you call us guineas and you don't accept Mm us. Um, and And then they start to climb the ranks of power. And so there's something really interesting then about the little guy gaining power, but then you still have large capital and corporations and then you have this messy involvement with the state you have special interests on one side special interests on the other side like it made me just become really interested in American history which I haven't been as interested in because I've been living abroad and so I've been trying to study more about world history but this Mm -hmm. made me want to kind of see like this other side of American history that they did not fucking teach us at all in I want to spend a lot more time
0: with the Kennedys now I'm like oh man there was some some dirt there I I think it it was in some ways it felt like it was like finally we're getting our comeuppance on the Kennedys it felt like like the mafia got their movie, like just like, fuck those guys. (laughs) It felt like, I mean, there's so many moments when, uh, you know, I'd love Jimmy, like raising the flag, didn't like the flag at half mast. I mean, there were Mm. some pieces that were quite funny. Um, but yeah, overall, I think the same thing. It's sort of, just I was, I found myself going into rabbit holes, reading fun articles, and I thought it was just an interesting uh, way in. You know, good entertainment can be a, a kind of cool path into history. So I thought it was cool, and it's mm-hmm. not going to be unlike Lincoln. It's not going to be the movie that your teacher rolls up in front of class on a little TV screen and plays on a VHS tape. This ain't that movie. This is a lot. <laughs> but not, it totally not such a sweet should movie. be, man.
2: It totally yeah.
0: should be, shouldn't it? I mean, it's 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 dark and violent, and I think in that way it's cool. But I don't think you're not. Right. Gonna to see it in a, in a high school classroom, probably. Yeah. So okay. at university, maybe. Right. Yeah. So you're a studio executive at, at Netflix. You've got 160 million dollars. You can spend on any movie. Do you spend it on this movie, or do you spend it somewhere else?
1: <laughs> Absolutely! Are you kidding? You're getting the dream team back together, and it, it's a huge. Uh, I bet you that they definitely got their money's worth, even though it did cost a boatload. But uh, um, yeah, with 160 the press million said alone. The equivalent
0: would be it would it would require a half a billion dollar box office, which I don't think this movie would have gotten. Uh, but it's going to help them again, just like Roma, be back in the running for Best Picture. Wow! I'm sure they're going to have. Uh, it's it's an award season movie and it's a prestige film I mean getting Scorsese I think another meta element getting Scorsese to make a movie for Netflix is probably a pretty pretty big deal and uh, mm. yeah I mean I had a good time I enjoyed it it wasn't my money I don't really care if I need to make it back uh, but I'm glad it felt like a Megan Ellison kind of move to Get the the best directors, and make the best movies possible. And well, that's, the, that's what totally they're cool. doing
1: to, to me just seems completely unsustainable. I mean, they're spending <laughs> like twelve billion dollars a year on original movies and stuff. I mean, I, I don't get it. Like how, like, <laughs> like even if half the world is subscribed to Netflix, does that even add up? Like, like
0: I don't, I don't know. know. I'm gonna I'm gonna invest in Theranos and WeWork and Netflix. These all make sense to me, Ryan. Sure. Okay. Well, the the new
2: economic model that a lot of people are writing about. There's a guy named Michel Fair, It's F E H E R. Some Bitcoin a to sell you. French. Well, his whole thing is that uh, we don't need to worry primarily about making profits as long as our market share, our market, our, our market capitalization uh, has value. Ah, uh, so the Amazon it Doesn't matter model. if you're. A yeah, it's the Amazon, it's the LinkedIn, it's the Facebook, it's the Snapchat and Instagram. It's the new model of these platforms. And that's what Netflix is doing is they're becoming a platform to kind of just basically get people into their network. And so as long as more people become subscribers, then the fear is, okay, well, then they can, like, create, like, super exploitative rates and get super profits in the future when they do become profitable. But some right. people say, no, something's got need give. to as long as – well, as long as you have an endless stream of access to cheap credit, then – then Netflix could sustain this potentially because it's just loans based on top of loans, based on top of loans. And as long as you can service your loans, then it doesn't fucking matter ultimately as long as you can service those loans. They got to make you know? money at some point, Austin.
0: I think I think the Amazon, we're going down a rabbit hole, but I think the Amazon example is a perfect one, which is you know you lose money for a long time but you build a huge, huge footprint. And at, and at any point when you're able to then switch into profit mode, You've got such unbelievable reach with tentacles into every single
2: category and you're unstoppable it, yeah. and
0: um yeah, and and so effing
2: convenient and on and on. Well, well anyway and if Netflix can keep making like I I'm just tired of Netflix because they are making like ninety five percent shit, but <laughs> if they can still keep making five percent like really good original content, then that's gonna like really be a great boon to their to their model moving forward, you know? And I think it like I don't know. It makes like Joes like me keep my subscription, right? Like I, I'm still paying twelve bucks a month or whatever it is, and I probably don't even watch that many Netflix things anymore. I'm, but I'm digging their of the Irishman.
1: Marriage Story was cool. Um, I heard that was great.
0: Yeah, there's a I've bunch of seen good it stuff yet. there. Well, let us know in the uh, comments, or let us know by email, movies at wisecrack.co, or the voicemail line, which I keep forgetting. But you can leave us a voicemail, too. Let us know what you're watching. Let us know what we should cover on the next installments, next season yeah. of Show Me the Meaning. We do yeah. have some voicemails. I don't know how you guys do it on time. Are you guys cool to get some Parasite voicemails, or should we save them for next time? Let's chat. Uh, I, I can do it. All right, we got four. We have a whole bunch of Parasite voicemails. Thank you. Parasite was such a great movie. Uh, I was not on the podcast, so if I'm maybe you guys want to catch up here, but uh, you've seen Parasite as well. I think you said Austin right. So let's dive mm-hmm. in. Uh, we've got four really good ones. I'll, I'll just pick uh, Ming for a second. Here we go.
4: Hi, show me the meaning crew. Uh, my name is Ming from New York City. Um, I just listened to your podcast about Parasite and. There were two points that I thought were really poignant that I wanted to point out. By the way, this movie had me absolutely in tears. I was, like, wailing in a dark theater. Had to roll all to myself. <laughs> it was pretty powerful. Um, well, one of the things that really, really moved me was how Moon Bong, uh, the former housekeeper, was talking about when um, – she and her husband were living in the house before I think the parks moved in and how they had this very lovely moment in which they were both upstairs. So they weren't in the basement, they were both upstairs. And the husband said, like, because we had access to these resources, like even in the music, we felt like people. And it was a scene in which like, you actually see the husband sort of act like a human instead of like a monster or, a parasite, um you, you, you kind of see him like start to dance and you kind of realize like oh this is there is a price to humanity. Like there there is an aspect of humanity that can be purchased with resources. Um and the second point was largely um the 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 rock thing that they had been given um you kind of always see it in water so at one point you see the rock submerged uh in the dirty sewerage water i think at one point you see it submerged in another type of water earlier in the film but in the end you see it submerged in clean water and it's you know you, you see blood on it too so it's there's this message about you know this material symbol of wealth being covered in different forms of water and And you have violence, you have dirt, you have the shit, you have um, sort of the collective dirtiness of a society that really prioritizes wealth. And I thought it was really beautiful in the end that you see the the rock in clear water. Um, I don't think that it really means anything because it kind of contradicts the ending, which which is still hopeful in a way that is sort of leaning towards more wealth um but yeah i just thought it was really beautiful it's like you have you have to get clean of these expectations you have to let go for it to mean anything and so it's hopeful um and i think it's a sign that maybe Kiwu will make the money to save his dad all right that's it thank you so much for all the work you do i love it bye
0: okay Thank you, Ming. Yeah, there's two there's we've got a moist rock, and we're talking about the housekeeper's husband, like this Great sort of voicemail. Thank for you. humanity. Yeah, very good. Ming, thank you for that. And and thank you to everybody who's been sending us voicemails. Again, the number is 213-534-8807 or 21 Elf Hut or ELF Gut07. Leave us a voicemail. But yeah, let's very interesting voicemail on Ming. Let's talk with about the rock. Firstly, we do see this rock constantly in moist with moist uh uh applications we've got water we got like the plumbing there's blood there it's just constantly mired um that rock is such a clear symbol of i guess prosperity right and the and similar to this movie we just talked
2: about the sort of the price that you pay for that Mm. yeah i'd be curious to know because like in the western post-christian world water always has a particular set of meanings right like purity cleansing or like i think i brought up in the actual podcast that you get the rock submerged into the unconscious like it's uh, you have like the the image of the iceberg that is the typical way that we think about the unconscious like a little bit is sticking above it but like the real depths of the psyche are like dwelling down beneath the surface mm-hmm. but you get this rock that's submerged so maybe the desire for prosperity becomes more of an unconscious thing becomes more ideological that that the son has to kind of uh, buy into so that he can continue to perpetuate this desire that he might be able to save his father even if it's a total fantasy and he'll never be able to do it but I don't know. I'd be curious to know that if in, like, Korean mythology and history, if water has the same or similar um, types of themes. And so I'd love for someone to kind of, who's uh, more informed, like, tell us, like, rocks and water, is that, is there something more concrete in Korean culture that can elaborate what's going on there, mm-hmm. you know? Do rocks you're, you're get it.
1: dropped in water in Korea? Send us emails, please. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We do know that in uh, in was it Philadelphia guns get submerged in water quite a lot. I love that that ah, uh, jumping back to our, right. our main main. Are they being
2: baptized? Is they're, that like purity for the sin that was just committed with the crime?
0: No, exactly. And there's a lot of the
2: baptism scenes. I,
0: I don't know. You just mentioned kind yeah, of the the yeah. baptism side, and then and then let's talk about the housekeeper's husband. So we we see this scene where they're kind of out and about in the in the um, house on their own, left to their own devices, with beautiful food and great music, and they're listening to the stereo, I believe and uh, dancing to this beautiful music. Um, and and Ming's point is just that there's sort of, there is kind of a price to humanity, to being able to sort of dance and enjoy one's life does require, you know, nice resources. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like we see counterpoints to that outside of the film, obviously. Plenty of people who don't have a lot of resources who still have plenty of joy uh, and experience great life without the means, without the Western means. Um, but, uh, yeah, what do you think there? Um, I thought she
1: she put it pretty eloquently in her think, right? voicemail. Um, I don't okay. really have much yeah. to add,
2: honestly. Okay, let's dive I mean, the in. The only thing I would say yeah. is that there's this great documentary a while ago. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's called like Conversations with the Dalai Lama or something like that. And it's this British journalist who... Uh, after spending months and months and months traveling around like Africa and in and, and a bunch of, uh, I don't remember if he's in like uh, sub-Saharan African uh, context and things like that. But he's in all of these like impoverished non-Western nations and he goes to finally meet with the Dalai Lama. And his first question is something like, I've traveled through all of these impoverished areas. And he said, and I'm from a very wealthy, he's like British, he's like I'm from a very wealthy uh, suburb in London, he said, but... The amount of joy and smiles that I saw on people's faces in these impoverished areas really was kind of stark to me. And he's like, why is that? And the Dalai Lama makes something serious that's like, you know, like the notorious B.I.G. Mo' money, mo' problems kind of statement where he's like, but that's because these people in these communities, what they have to rely on is themselves and each other and family and love and laughter and dance and song. And so there's something about, yeah, maybe... You need resources in order to be happy, but it's maybe how it is that we value those resources. So if you value material and the accumulation of material commodities, then you're going to be in an endless chase to need to acquire them in order to achieve that level of humanity. But if you don't value those in the first place, right? Like if you don't value gold as being valuable in a monetary term, but you value a sunset or you value your family or you value the spiritual connections that you have with nature or whatever, then you don't need... The accumulation of commodities in order to find a similar type of abundance, but abundance just takes a different cultural form.
1: I, I, I yes, I, I to piggyback on what you just said, I uh, I think it's kind of like that. But like, really, they're talking about like getting your bare, bare basic necessities. You know, if if that is just taken care of, if basically life is a seemingly an endless series of lux- luxury or leisure time. I mean. Then, you know, it's easier to have the appearance and perception that, oh, I'm a good person because I'm like, you know, you can, I don't know, go to your local uh, uh, pet shelter or, or a homeless shelter. Help mm-hmm. out. You can feel good about yourself. You can be, ha- you can seem like you're this happy person enjoying your life. You know, whereas if if all you have to if if you're toiling away all day and that's your number one thought that, you know, when you wake up and go to bed at night is just how am I going to put food on the table? Then, yeah, your life seems less valuable, you know, is, is kind of what I think that she was saying in that scene. Or appears less valuable or or or, yeah, your time is just, you know, it's. It could be so easy to be a good person or a happy person if you had all the money and resources to do so.
0: Next voicemail, do you want anonymous, Robert, or Wolfgang? Oh, we're going based off their name, huh? I guess Wolfgang sounds
1: uh, the gnarliest. (laughs) Hey, Wisecrack,
0: it's Wolfgang. Uh, I just had two quick thoughts about Parasite. The first one was uh, when he's
3: uh, when the father's beginning to be his driver, and he mentioned something about. knowing everything below 36 in the parallel line. Uh, that was a reference to the line in between North and South Korea, which my American sensibilities didn't pick up on. And then as well as that, I also interpreted the ending as him only being able to believe that he would be rich enough to get that house because he had brain damage, which I feel like you guys got really close to at the end of the last podcast, but didn't say.
0: Uh, thanks, and have a good one. Thanks, Wolfgang. So interesting tidbit on the line. Uh, what was the what? Was, what's the point about the the mental, the, the 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 brain damage to be able to afford the house just from all the banging? I,
1: I I don't remember the part of his narration at the end where he said that he could only he he was gonna uh have this whole plan go through because of his what had happened to him, or I thought it was in
2: spite of no, no, no. I thought I it think, was in spite of that. Uh, am I wrong? Did I miss something? I think I think what Wolf, I think what Wolfgang's saying is that the only way that he can believe that is because he's disillusioned like he's his he's fucked up in the head and so therefore he has to lie to himself thinking like oh I'll be able to achieve this but in reality oh. he never will
0: oh like all that is a fa- like a fantasy at the very end yeah th- because I think that's
2: that's the issue and so even Ming in the last call said that she thinks that maybe there is a sense in which he will be able to achieve that that like there's there's some hope right like whether or not he will or not he truly believes that he will but then wolfgang is saying well maybe the only reason he believes that is because he's fucked up in the head and he's crazy oh and he got (laughs) the brain damage from getting hit on the rock with the rock yeah yeah. so it's
1: almost like the 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 hope was beat into him with the with the hope
0: rock Hmm. you know (laughs) no (laughs) it's interesting i mean yeah i mean in a way it was
1: transferred the hope was transferred from the rock when it slammed into his brain and now he has. Heard I read that as like yeah. where it was before.
0: Obviously, we don't we don't know if that's real or not. Uh, the hey, we're showing thing, you but... the meaning. It's for real. Yeah, yeah. Play that thank inception you, sound. Exactly. I'm, I, I got to switch boards here. Oh. Boom. <laughs> thank you. All right, Wolfgang. you're you're welcome. Woo! A thank little you, golf Wolfgang. clap for you, <laughs> Wolfgang. Thank you. This is Wolfgang right now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wolfgang. All right, let's
0: uh, We go to one more voicemail. I don't know if we have any emails today, uh, Austin or, or uh, Ryan, if you want to dive into. but let me play one more voicemail. If you guys want to dive in, we can. But let me, uh, I'm going to pull up anonymous. And Robert, sorry I didn't get to get, get to you right now. Maybe we'll do a mailbag episode uh, soon, and let's dive right in.
3: Hi, guys. I just listened to your Parasite podcast, and you guys mentioned the architect and why he has significance in the film. The only thing I could really think of is the general reverence, both the maids, Family and the Kim family have the upper class. I think this kind of speaks to uh, the director's broader message in the movie and the difficulty in trying to unite the working class because both the maid and the family want to be part of the elite. So they don't blame or even question the capitalist system which led them to their essentially like destitute living situation. Um, Their belief that they could one day be like the parks or the architect or even his friend that studied America is based on the false hope that capitalism provides that kind of like the whole American dream thing that everyone can make it to the top with enough work and conviction. I really feel like the last scene of the movie is the director essentially saying that's not true because the son did not have a chance to be like the parks before the movie started. And at the end of the movie, now that he has a criminal record and a brain injury, it's even more impossible, but he's still buying into that capitalist vision that one day he will be able to buy that house.
0: Thank you. Another showing the meaning. Uh, We've got it perfect. We've got capitalists and and communists on the line here today to talk about (laughs) that. I guess what,
1: what, what, when, when people uh, uh, bring up like you know it's this capitalist vision that uh, promise that it doesn't upheld. I mean ca- capitalism is like a system that we're living in, and yeah, like people, human beings, you know, they that use a system to get wealthy and stuff. Like there's expectations brought uh, that that come with that at some point, and uh, uh, an American, the American dream is just like a story. But I feel like like what. Uh, uh, the guy's just using logic at the end of the day in my mind it's like he's like okay if I if I do this if I get this amount of money then I can uh, uh, if, if I work real hard on my college then I'll get this job and then if I get that job I can get this amount of money and then I can get this house and yada 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 I mean like I don't see why people like extrapolate like that, capitalism has like brainwashed somebody into thinking that that just thinking logically like that uh, those those steps is like a, a bad thing. Other than yeah, like like you said before, just the sheer desire for for need and excess and goods is not necessarily qualitatively a bad thing. I mean, a good thing, but uh, uh, it sure I think the makes life that, more uh, fun. Some,
0: like like be- believing that it's possible for anybody is is the trap. For these characters, where they, for they everybody they and escape, anybody, yeah, yeah, that they think that they can escape their, their situation. Um, well, what's they your can. read on it, Austin? I know you're you're they pretty can. sympathetic to this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yeah, um, open that can of worms. And we're this done is for opening today. a um, can of
2: worms. So I'll just quickly say two things. One, we got a lot of emails about the architect, the identity of the architect, and so I think. There's some really interesting stuff going on there. Like a lot of people saw the architect as being like a divine figure, like mm. a almost a godlike figure that's worshipped, That that is like behind the scenes, that is ultimately creating the conditions out of which this beautiful house and this beautiful story plays out, right? So if you view the architect as being God and the house as being like this other world that you can aspire to, then it's all about like ascending and climbing the ladder to divinity that is being like overseen in this house by the powers of the architect. I think that's some really interesting stuff to think about. Um, And then I think, Jacob, what you just said is right. Like the issue is is capitalism is a mode of production. And what that means is it's a system of how it is that our instruments, our commodities are produced and then reproduced, how it functions, right? So capitalism is a mode of production, a way of production. There are other non-capitalist modes of production, right? But capitalism is also, as the great political economist Jason Moore says, it is a mode of rationality which means that it is a way of thinking. It operates from a type of thinking. It has certain presuppositions. And then it reproduces not just commodities and value and profits and money, but it also produces ways of thinking. So in other words, it produces logics. So Ryan was just saying that it just seems like a simple set of steps or logics. But if you really study the history of the development of logic, if you understand how these things kind of fit within, like I would say this particular mode of rationality, you see that the logic that he's expressing that the sun is expressing that ryan was just talking about isn't logic in some sort of objective universal sense but it's rather it's a type of capitalist logic if i do this then i will get this it's called instrumental rationality in philosophical terms and so there's a type of call them (laughs) a a quit right right do for me you scratch my back i scratch your back but it's like if i attain this then i can get more of that Mm -hmm. and then the question is is how does that more get created and so this is where you get certain critiques of how it is that more is developed and created how are profits generated so the mode of production is also a mode of rationality i know that might sound abstract but if you just google those things or you can listen to my other podcast where we wax philosophical on this stuff Mm -hmm. all the time and we will bore the shit out of you with politics and philosophy and <laughs> shit. It's called Owls at Dawn. Love and we are card-carrying it. commies. So, you know, you can get a little bit of that commie shit in there if you want. So
0: thank you for that call, Anonymous. I wish we had a, fo- a name for you. I would uh, Thank you. Yeah, Anon. Thank you. Anon. Thank you. Thank you, Q-A-Non. So, Thank you. So any uh, emails you'd like to dive into,
2: Austin? No. I, I, like Literally all the ones from Parasite that caught my attention were about the architect. And so I kind of was Beautiful. trying to, like, condense all of them into just kind of uh, mentioning that bit because I think that's the one thing that I stepped away from still really unsure about too but I really like that reading that like a handful of emailers mentioned that as it is a reminder kind of like a the
0: architect figure. is what bit says it's the actual architect of the house itself
2: yeah mm. yeah 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 of the parks house of
0: the parks house who she admires greatly and kind of talks about yeah. like as a almost like a lore Jacob, Well, I, I, yeah. I
1: very quickly have a uh, two tweets about the Irishman I'd like to read please are they about me? No, they are not about you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I haven't been looking at the chat. Uh, uh, Good. So one is Colin Quinn from Saturday Night Live said, Wow. The Irishman is superior to Goodfellas in that Goodfellas cut out all the driving and checked it and checking into hotels and just left the exciting <laughs> parts. <laughs> so Jesus. I love that. Uh, and then uh, we got a great reply from Norm McDonald, also from Star Night Live, who said, Very true. Also, I, the Irishman made the interesting choice of having the young De Niro and young Pesci shuffle around like old men and talk with old man, man voices, creating a fascinating dissonance yeah. that was never annoying. Not good, fellas. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Bravo, yeah, guys. I did notice yeah. that when uh, when old Robert De Niro tried to stomp on the shopkeeper's hand, you could tell that it was a man in his 70s. Yeah, it was, oh, just yeah. Like the,
1: like, it was
0: like the knees didn't look good. Like, were kind of doing no, a,
2: that a shot shuffle. in
1: particular was pretty egregious but yeah, yeah. i i i, I like the movie more than those out live guys did but i thought that i got a good chuckle out of that
0: thank you for sharing those that's that's beautiful well i think if i'm not mistaken we might have shown the meaning tonight folks uh,
1: so, something <laughs> happened tonight uh something happened we i got the something. ebgb's
0: for a second there <laughs> it felt good Thank you, uh, Austin. Thank you, Ryan. Where can we find you on the internet? Let's start with you, Ryan Haley.
1: Ryan's Game Show! On YouTube and Facebook and <laughs> shit like that. And uh, Ryan Shorts. I put stuff on both of those periodically go for it yeah
0: I was I was saying on the on the South Park podcast earlier this week which you should definitely check out and check out the season but I was saying Ryan's got a beautiful short on visit Memphis from last year I want to say maybe two years ago it was just amazing thank and you. I am gonna go visit so I re I rewatched that video and dude I'm just oh dude yeah go,
1: go check off all those things I hope you uh I hope you have a fun visit in Memphis Hit thank me
0: I up, can't sure. wait to go see the ducks and that and that uh Bass Pro Shops pyramid just as Ramsey's <laughs> intended that's uh Ryan's shorts and visit Memphis so check that out on facebook or youtube Uh, i really like
2: the one when you go to burning man too and you have to uh, raise all the money yeah 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 i sell my soul that was like a year a year ago (laughs) or yeah ryan's (laughs) shorts are
0: like it's like my favorite thing to watch it's the best show on tv Uh, (laughs) yeah no it's great shit so and ryan uh, and
2: austin i'm sorry where can we find you on the cyber Uh, You can hit me up on Insta. It's A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. I've been a lot more active lately, and I will be moving forward on Insta. You can also hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Mm -hmm. And then I've got my philosophy podcast that I do with my buddy Troy. It's Owls at Dawn. You can find it anywhere. And then I've been doing this weird... Um, read through the Bible. Like For people who don't know me, I was training to be a pastor for a long time and I ended up doing graduate degrees in theology before doing other work in philosophy, which is where I work now, philosophy and political economy. But I'm like rereading the Bible for the first time in 10 years and so wow. I'm uploading videos as I'm going through it and I am... Done with Genesis and Exodus, I'm like halfway through Leviticus, and I'm putting at least two or three videos up a week, and it's just kind of like a real quick flyby as I'm reading through the Bible from like a a post-Christian, post-evangelical, philosophical, Mm. and political and economic perspective. So check that out on YouTube, just look for Austin Hayden or Austin Hayden Smith, it's called An Apostate's Bible Read.
0: I love that, man, that's so cool, that's so cool, I hear it's a pretty good book. Dude, I'm so glad that you're fucking better, (laughs)
1: man, that was scary, dude, I'm glad that you're uh, back talking movies with us.
0: Absolutely. Me too, man. Me too. We're very happy you're back, man. Uh, Thank you. can you. check out Wisecrack has got a whole bunch of amazing new articles. We've just launched this really cool partnership with Medium, medium.com. Uh, Wisecrack's entire publications on Medium. Alec, who runs our writing team, uh, has beautiful articles three times a week with really beautiful illustrations and art by uh, J.R. Fleming, another really awesome artist who worked with us on a bunch of shows. So check it out at medium.com slash wisecrack. There's some really cool stories. We have some new stories now on craft beer and postmodernism that just went live. (laughs) Uh, We've got a really cool story on Spotify Rewind or that Spotify year in review thing that was pretty spooky. So check it all out. Medium.com slash Wisecrack. You can find us anywhere Wisecrack, at Wisecrack, etc. I'm on Twitter, too, although I don't do anything there, at Jacob Solomon. And I just found out today that Obama follows me, which is crazy. I don't know why. <laughs> no clue. Maybe it's a robot. Uh, but anyway, thanks so much. And we have been live from where, from where Ryan?
1: Goodbye from Hollywood,
2: California!
0: Goodbye from Hollywood, California. It's been fun. See you guys soon. I think we're not going to be back until the new year on this show. So have okay. a happy, happy holiday, everybody. Uh, hope you guys have a great Christmas and a happy new year. Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, etc., etc. Enjoy the movies. Enjoy your Netflix. Enjoy Star Wars. And uh, please send us all of your emails. Movies at Wisecrack.com. We'll catch you next year. I have one Deuces. more thing. One more thing. What's your favorite movie are. of the year real quickly? Oh, my God. <laughs> I love That's uh, two on the spot. Uh, Parasite for me probably and I was going to say
2: Mandy although that was last year. I loved Mandy oh, uh- too. I'm going to say Angelo, which was a, a, a smaller film that I saw at the Sydney Film Fest. It was actually my favorite film, more more so than Parasite, even though I think Parasite might be a better technical film, but Angelo was my favorite film of the year. All righty. Beautiful. I'm going
1: to go with Climax, Gaspar Noe. I haven't seen that yet.
0: Oh, Solo was, yeah.
1: was crazy.
0: I have not seen The Lighthouse. I haven't seen, I mean, I have so many movies to catch up on, but I think the best you movie know. that I that I watched all year, were you there for the, for Stalker? Was that you there, Ryan? The, tar- the Tarkovsky, Tarkovsky viewing uh, yeah uh,
1: okay uh no I that's my favorite
0: that. movie of 2019 was Tarkovsky's Stalker from 1960 whatever <laughs> Okay, yeah I, sure. I, I, I don't think I, that counts
1: but, uh, I, but we'll I'm a little it.
0: behind Ryan no but no it's uh Parasite was for me I think just the best movie so far I loved it I loved nice, it man. all right guys thanks so much see y'all in 2020 goodbye from Hollywood yeah. California deuces peace